Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I was actually by myself for the entirety of the holiday, which, you know, was a kind of a bummer, but it was the right thing to do. Fortunately, I was able to see my mom the day after. And in fact, I am recording at her house in my old bedroom, and it's so quiet here out of Chicago. So, um, and apologies in advance. I feel a little exhausted. My dog, who is almost a year old, he's a French bulldog, was snoring so loud all night that I did not get a a restful sleep. So if it comes across in the episode, I apologize in advance. But anyway, again, hope you guys are doing well and hope that you guys were able to celebrate in a safe and healthy way with um, families or even without. So I am looking forward to next year when I think, you know, the vaccines will be in play and in April, um, 50% of people will be vaccinated. So that is good news. There's a lot to look forward to. But in the meantime, let's get started with episode 13. So I chose um, a very interesting story. We're actually going to be going over to jolly old England. And we're focused on John Bingham, who is the seventh Earl of Lucan. He is a colorful British peer and aristocrat who disappeared mysteriously in 1974 after being suspected of murder. And my sources today, um, very heavily Wikipedia, I found a BBC article published in September 2017, and also an independent UK article by Tom Barnes published in January 2018 as main sources. So, but let's get started. Richard John Bingham was born on December 18, 1934, at 19 Bentnick Street in Marlebone, London, the second child and elder son of George Bingham, 6th Earl of Lucan, an Anglo-Irish peer, and his wife, Caitlin Elizabeth Ann Dawson. A blood clot found in his mother's lung forced her to remain in a nursing home, so John, as he became known, was initially cared for by the family's nursery maid. At age three, he attended a pre-prep school in Tite Street with his elder sister, Jane, but in 1939, with war approaching, the two were taken to the relative safety of Wales. The following year, joined by their younger siblings, Sally and Hugh, the Lucan children traveled to Toronto, Canada, moving shortly thereafter to Mount Kisco, New York, in the United States. They stayed for five years with multimillionaires Marsha Brady Tucker. John was enrolled at the Harvey School and spent summer holidays away from his siblings at a summer camp in the Adirondack Mountains. While in the U.S., John and his siblings lived in grandeur and wanted for nothing. But on their return to England in February 1945, they were faced with the stark realities of wartime Britain. Rationing was still in force and their former home had been bombed, and the house at 22 Eaton Square had had its windows blown out. Despite the family's noble ancestry, The sixth Earl and his wife were agnostics and socialists who preferred a more austere existence than that offered by Tucker, an extremely wealthy Christian. For a time, John suffered nightmares and was taken to a psychotherapist. 
but as an adult, he remained an agnostic, but ensured that his children attended Sunday school, preferring to give them a traditional childhood. At Eton College, where I actually believe Queen Elizabeth attended, John developed a taste for gambling. He supplemented his pocket money with income from bookmaking, placing his earnings into a secret bank account, and regularly left the school's grounds to attend horse races. According to his mother, John's academic record was far from creditable, but he became captain of Rose House before leaving in 1953 to undertake his national service. He became a second lieutenant in his father's regiment, the Coldstream Guards, and was stationed mainly in Creefield, West Germany. While there, he also became a keen poker player. On leaving the army in 1954, Lucan joined William Brandt's son and company, a London-based merchant bank, on an annual salary of 500 pounds. In 1960, he met Stephen Raphael, a rich stockbroker who was a skilled backgammon player. They holidayed together in the Bahamas, went water skiing, and played golf, backgammon, and poker. Lucan became a regular gambler and an early member of John Aspinall's Claremont Gaming Club, located in Berkeley Square. He often won at games of skill like backgammon and bridge, but he also accumulated huge losses. On one occasion, he lost 8,000 pounds, or about two-thirds of the money he received annually from various family trusts. On another disastrous night at a casino, he lost 10,000 pounds. That time, his stockbroker uncle by marriage, John Bevan, helped him to pay the debt, and Lucan repaid his uncle two years later. Lucan left Brands in 1960 shortly after he'd won 26,000 pounds playing Chemin de Fer. Not sure what that is, but clearly some fancy game. A colleague had been promoted before him, and he protested and then gave up his job saying, quote, Why should I work in a bank when I can earn a year's money in one single night at the tables? Lucan traveled to the U.S. where he played golf, raced powerboats, and drove his Aston Martin around the West Coast, so quite a lush life. He also visited his elder sister Jane and his former guardian, Marcia Tucker. On his return to England, he moved out of his parents' home in St. John's Wood and into a flat in Park Crescent. He met his future wife, Veronica Duncan, early in 1963. She was born in 1937 to Major Charles Morehouse Duncan and his wife, Thelma. Veronica's father had died in a car accident when she was young, after which the family moved to South Africa. Her mother remarried, and her family returned to England, where her new stepfather became manager of a hotel in Guildford. With her sister, Christina, she was educated at St. Swithin's School in Winchester, after displaying a talent for art, Veronica went on to study at an art college in Bournemouth. The two sisters later shared a flat in London, where Veronica worked as a model and later as a secretary. Christina's marriage to the wealthy William Shan Kidd, half-brother to Peter Shan Kidd, who was stepfather to Diana Spencer, the late Princess of Wales, introduced her to London High Society, and it was at a golf club function in the country that Veronica and Lucan first met. News of their engagement appeared in the Times and the Daily Telegraph newspapers on October 14, 1963, and the two were married at Holy Trinity Church, Brompton, a month and a half later. After a ceremony attended by Prince Alice, Countess of Athlone, as well as a few other prominent members of high society, and I believe Princess Alice is Prince Philip's mother, who is Prince Philip is Queen Elizabeth's husband, if you live under a rock. But anyway, the couple honeymooned in Europe, traveling first class on the Orient Express, and who would expect any less? Lucan's already embattled finances were given a welcome boost by his father, who provided him with a marriage settlement designed to finance a larger family home 
and any future additions to the Lucan family. Lucan repaid some of his creditors and purchased 46 Lower Belgrave Street in Belgravia, redecorating it to suit Veronica's tastes. Two months after the wedding, the sixth Earl of Lucan died of a stroke. In addition to a reputed 250,000 pounds of inheritance, Lucan acquired his father's titles, Earl of Lucan, Baron Lucan of Castlebar, Baron Lucan of Melcombe Lucan, and Baronet Bingham of Castlebar. It's just a lot. It's just a lot, England. Just give him, give him one nickname. Although it's kind of fun, isn't it? I have no idea what any of those really mean, but they're quite fancy. His wife became the Countess of Lucan. Their first child, Francis, was born on October 24th in 1964, and early the next year, they employed a nanny, Lillian Jenkins, to look after her. Lucan tried to teach Veronica about gambling and traditional pursuits like hunting, shooting, and fishing. He bought her golf lessons, and she later gave up the sport. You know, sometimes you really, you really got to have things in common with your partner. It sounds like they just did not. Now here's something kind of fantastic. Lucan's daily routine. So this consisted of breakfast at nine, which is actually earlier than you might expect for someone like him, coffee, dealing with the morning's letters, reading the newspapers, and playing the piano. He sometimes jogged in the park and took his Doberman Pinscher for walks. Lunch at the Claremont Club was followed by afternoon games of backgammon, returning home to change into evening dress. Then he typically spent the remainder of the day at Claremont gambling into the early hours, watched sometimes by Veronica. What a great date night with your wife just staring at you while you're losing the family's money. (laughs) But honestly, there are elements of his daily routine that I love, you know. It's just having very little responsibility, but again, very reckless at the same time, and it will manifest later in very bad ways. But there are elements that are quite appealing. In 1956, while still working at Brands, he had written of his desire to have two million pounds in the bank, claiming that, quote, motor cars, yachts, expensive holidays, and security for the future would give myself and a lot of other people a lot of pleasure. <laughs> Lucan was described by his friends as a shy and taciturn man, but with his tall stature, quote, luxuriant guardsman mustache, and masculine pursuits, his exploits made him popular. His profligacy extended to hiring private aircraft to take his friends to the races, asking a car dealer he knew to source an Aston Martin drophead coupe, drinking expensive Russian vodka and racing powerboats. In September 1966, he unsuccessfully screen-tested for a part in Woman Times 7, prompting him to decline a later offer from film producer Albert R. Broccoli to screen-test him for the role of James Bond. He would have been a great James Bond. As a professional gambler, Lucan was a skilled player once rated amongst the world's top 10 backgammon competitors. He won the St. James Clubs Tournament and was champion of the West Coast of America. He gained the moniker Lucky Lucan, but his losses easily outweighed his winnings. And in reality, he was anything but lucky. Lucan also had interests in thoroughbred horses, of course. In 1968, he paid more in race entry fees than he received in winnings, Despite some arguments over money, Veronica remained largely ignorant of his losses, retaining the use of accounts at Seville Row Tailors and various nightbridge shops. Now, following the births of George and Camilla in 67 and 70, respectively, Veronica suffered postnatal depression. Lucan became increasingly involved in her mental well-being and in 1971 took her for treatment at a psychiatric clinic in Hampstead, where she refused to be admitted. 
so instead she agreed to home visits from a psychiatrist and a course of antidepressants. Which, you know, it's more private, but at least she did something. It's a responsible thing. In July 1972, the family holidayed in Monte Carlo, but Veronica quickly returned to England, leaving Lucan and their two elder children. The combined pressures of maintaining their finances, the costs of Lucan's gambling addiction, and Veronica's weakened mental condition took a toll on their marriage. And two weeks after a strained family Christmas in 1972, Lucan moved into a small property in Eaton Row. Some months later, Lucan moved again to a larger rented flat nearby Elizabeth Street. And despite an early attempt by his wife at reconciliation, by that point, all Lucan wanted from the marriage was custody of his children. In an effort to demonstrate that Veronica was unfit to look after them, he began to spy on his family. His car was regularly seen parked in Lower Belgrave Street. And later, he employed private investigators to perform the same task. Lucan also canvassed doctors who explained that his wife had, quote, not gone mad, but was suffering from depression and anxiety. Lucan told his friends that nobody would work for Veronica. She sacked the children's long-term nanny, Lillian Jenkins, in December 72. Of the series of nannies employed in the house, one 26-year-old Stefania Sawika was told by Veronica that Lucan had hit her with a cane and had, on one occasion, pushed her down the stairs. The Countess apparently feared for her safety and told Sawicka not to be surprised if, quote, he kills me one day. Sawicka's time at the Lucan household ended in late March 1973. While with two of the children near Grosvenor Place, she was confronted by Lucan and two private detectives. They told her that the children had been made wards of the court and that she must release them into his custody, which she did. Francis was collected from school later in the day. And Veronica applied to the court to have the children returned, but concerned about the case's complexity, the judge set a date for the hearing three months ahead for June 73. To defend herself against Lucan's claim about her mental state, Veronica booked herself at a four-day stay at the Priory Clinic in Roehampton. While it was acknowledged that she still required some psychiatric support, the doctors reported that there was no indication that she was mentally ill. Lucan's case depended upon Veronica being unable to care for the children, but at the hearing, he was instead forced to defend his own behavior toward her. After several weeks of witnesses and protracted arguments in camera, on the advice of his lawyers, he conceded the case. Unimpressed by Lucan's character, Mr. Justice Reese awarded custody to Veronica. The Earl was allowed access every other weekend. Thus began a bitter dispute between the couple, involving many of their friends and Veronica's own sister, Lucan again began to watch his wife's movements. He recorded some of their telephone conversations with a small Sony tape recorder and played excerpts to any friends prepared to listen. He also told them and his bank manager that Veronica had been, quote, spending money like water. Lucan continued to pay her 40 pounds a week and may have canceled their regular food order with Harrods. He delayed payment to the milkman and the child care agency, knowing that Veronica was required by the court to employ a live-in nanny. With no income of her own, Veronica took a part-time job in a local hospital. A temporary nanny, Elizabeth Murphy, was befriended by Lucan, who bought her drinks and asked for, for information on his wife. He instructed his detective agency to investigate Murray, looking for evidence that she was failing in her duty of care to his children. This they found. He dispensed with the detective agency's services when they presented him with bills amounting to several hundred pounds. Murphy was later hospitalized with cancer. Another temporary nanny, Christabel Martin, reported strange telephone calls to the house, some with heavy breathing and some from a man asking for non-existent people. 
Following a series of temporary nannies, Sandra Rivert started work in late 1974. Can you imagine being a young woman trying to care for these children? You've, you've got a whack job of their father just harassing you. And I will say, you know, good for Veronica for having gotten a part-time job. I mean, you just got to do what you got to do in order to provide for your kids. So I appreciate that about her. Losing the court case proved devastating for Lucan. It had cost him an estimated 20,000 pounds, and by late 1974, his financial position was dire. As he drank more heavily and started chain-smoking, his friends began to worry. In drunken conversations with them, including Aspinall's mother, Lady Osborne, and her son, Lucan discussed murdering his wife. Greville Hower later gave a statement to the police describing how Lucan had talked of killing his wife and how that might save him from bankruptcy, how her body might be disposed of in the Solent, and how he would, quote, never be caught. Lucan borrowed 4,000 pounds from his mother and asked Marcia Tucker for a loan of 100,000 pounds. Having no luck there, he wrote to Tucker's son explaining how he wished to buy his children from Veronica. The money was not forthcoming. He turned to his friends and acquaintances, asking anyone plausible to loan him money to fund his gambling addiction. The financier, James Goldsmith, guaranteed a £5,000 overdraft for him, which for years remained unpaid. Lucan also applied to the discreet Edgware Trust. On request, he supplied details of his income, which was apparently around £12,000 a year from various family trusts. Lucan was required to provide a surety and received only £3,000 of the £5,000 he'd asked for. And much to their manager's consternation, his four bank accounts were overdrawn. Even though by then he was playing for much lower stakes than he had previously done, his gambling remained completely out of control. There's estimates that between September and October 1974 alone, the Earl ran up debts around 50,000 pounds. A friend of Lucan, for more than a decade, lent him 3,000 pounds in cash three nights before the murder. And despite these problems, from late October 74, Lucan's demeanor appeared to change for the better. His best man, John Wilbraham, remarked that Lucan's apparent obsession over regaining his children had diminished. While having dinner with his mother, he cast aside talk of his family problems and turned instead to politics. On November 6, he met his uncle John Bevan and apparently was in good spirits. He later met 21-year-old Charlotte Culcuhan, who said that he, quote, seemed very happy, just his usual self, and there was nothing to suggest that he was worried or depressed. He also dined at the Claremont with racing driver Graham Hill. At the time, casinos could only open between 2 p.m. and 4 a.m., so Lucan often gambled into the early hours of the morning. He took tablets to deal with his insomnia and, and therefore usually awoke around lunchtime. But on the 7th of November, he broke routine and called a solicitor early that morning, and at 10.30 a.m. took a call from Charlotte. I'm guessing she was a girlfriend. They arranged to eat at the Claremont at about 3 p.m., but he failed to appear. Charlotte drove past the Claremont and Ladbroke clubs and past Elizabeth Street, but could not find his car anywhere. He had failed to arrive for his 1 p.m. lunch appointment with artist Dominic Elwes and banker Daniel Meinertz Hagen, again at the Claremont. At 4 p.m., he called a chemist on Lower Belgrave Street close to Veronica's home and asked the pharmacist there to identify a small capsule. It turned out to be Limbitrol 5, a drug for the treatment of anxiety and depression. Lucan had apparently made several similar visits since he had separated from his wife. He never told the pharmacist where he got the drugs. At 4.45 p.m., he called a friend, 
literary agent Michael Hicks Beach, and between 6.30 and 7 that night, met with him at his flat on Elizabeth Street. Lucan wanted his help with an article on gambling he had been asked to write for an Oxford University magazine. He drove Hicks Beach home at about 8 p.m., not in his Mercedes-Benz, but rather in a, a, quote, old, dark, and scruffy Ford, possibly the Ford Corsair he borrowed from Michael Stoop several weeks earlier. At 8.30 p.m., he called the Claremont to check on a reservation for dinner with Greville Howard and friends. Howard had called him at 5.15 and asked him if he wished to come to the theater, but Lucan had declined and made the alternative suggestion to meet at the Claremont at 11 p.m. He failed to arrive and did not answer his telephone when called. Now let's talk a little bit about the nanny, Sandra Rivet. She was born on September 16, 1945, the third child of Albert and Eunice Hensby. That family had moved to Australia when she was two years old, but returned in 1955. Sandra was a popular child, described at school as intelligent, although she does not excel academically. She'd worked for six months as an apprentice hairdresser before taking a job as a secretary in Croydon. After a failed romance, she became a voluntary patient at a mental hospital near Red Hill, Surrey, where she was treated for depression. She became engaged to a builder named John and took a job as a children's nanny for a doctor in Croydon. She gave birth to a boy named Stephen in 1964, but as her relationship with John was failing, she returned home to live with her parents and considered giving the baby up for adoption. She later worked for the home of the elderly before moving to Portsmouth to stay with her older sister. This is where she met Roger Rivett, her future husband. He took a job on an Esso tanker, returning to their flat in Kenley a few months later, by which time Sandra was employed by a cigarette company in Croydon. Their marriage collapsed the next year, and when suspicious of Sandra's movements while he was away, Roger went to live with his parents. She was then listed on the books of a Belgravia domestic agency and had been caring for an elderly couple in that district. And then a few weeks later, she began to work for the Lucans, unfortunately for her. Now, Sandra normally went out with her boyfriend, John Hankins, on Thursday nights, but had changed her night off and had seen him the previous day. The two last spoke on the telephone at about 8 p.m. on the 7th of November. After putting the younger children to bed, at about 8.55 p.m., she asked Veronica Lucan if she would like a cup of tea before heading downstairs to the basement kitchen to make one. But as she entered the room, she was bludgeoned to death with a piece of bandaged lead pipe. Her killer then placed her body in a canvas mailbag. Meanwhile, wondering what had delayed her nanny, Lady Lucan descended from the first floor to see what had happened. She called to rivet from the top of the basement stairs and then was herself attacked. As she screamed for her life, her attacker told her to shut up. Lady Lucan later claimed at that moment to have recognized her husband's voice. The two apparently continued to fight. She bit his fingers, and when he threw her face down to the carpet, she managed to turn around and squeeze his testicles, causing him to release his grip on her throat and give up the fight. When she asked where Rivet was, Lucan was at first evasive, but eventually admitted to having killed her. Terrified, Veronica told him she would help him escape if only he would remain at the house for a few days to allow her injuries to heal. Lucan walked upstairs and sent his daughter to bed, then went into one of the bedrooms. When Veronica entered to lie on the bed, he told her to put towels down first to avoid staining the bedding. He asked her if she had any barbiturates and went to the bathroom to get a wet towel, supposedly to clean Veronica's face. 
Veronica realized her husband would be unable to hear her from the bathroom, and she made her escape, running outside to a nearby public house, the Plumber's Arms. Now, can you imagine what a strange situation this must have been? Clearly, she knew him well enough to sort of placate him, but I just think it's the strangest thing that he would just kind of give up his attack. Perhaps the fact that she said she would help him escape was what, you know, calmed him down, but very, very strange. Veronica may have arrived at the Chester home of Madeline Foreman, mother of one of their children's school friends, sometime between 10 p.m. and 10.30. Alone in the house, Foreman ignored the door, but shortly afterwards, she received an incoherent telephone call and put the receiver down. Bloodstains, which after a forensic examination were found to be a mixture of blood groups A and B, were later discovered on her doorstep. Lucan certainly called his mother between 10.30 and 11 p.m. and asked her to collect the children from Lower Belgrave Street. According to the Dowager Countess, he spoke of a terrible catastrophe at his wife's home. He told her that he had been driving past the house when he saw Veronica fighting with a man in the basement. How could you see that, by the way? I mean, perhaps there was a window, but so stupid. He had entered the property and found his wife screaming. The location from which he made this, and possibly the call to Florman, remains unknown. The police forced their way into Lady Lucan's home and discovered Rivet's body before his wife was taken by ambulance to St. George's Hospital. Lucan drove the Ford Corsair 42 miles to Uckfield in East Sussex to visit his friends, the Maxwell Scots. Susan Maxwell Scott's meeting with Lucan was his last confirmed sighting. By the time Detective Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson arrived at Lower Belgrave Street, on Friday, November 8th, the divisional surgeon had pronounced Sandra Rivet dead, and forensic officers and photographers had been called to the property. Other than the front door, which the first two officers on the scene had kicked in, there was no sign of a forced entry. A bloodstained towel was found in Veronica's first-floor bedroom, and the area around the top of the basement staircase was heavily bloodstained. A bloodstained lead pipe also lay on the floor. Pictures hanging from the staircase walls were askew, and a metal banister rail was damaged. At the foot of the stairs, two cups and saucers lay in a pool of blood. Rivet's arm protruded from the canvas sack, which lay in a slowly expanding pool of blood. The light fitting at the bottom of the stairs was missing its bulb. One was noted nearby on a chair. Blood was also found on various leaves in the adjoining rear garden. So it seems like they conducted a very thorough investigation. Officers searched 5 Eaton Row, as well as his last address at 72A Elizabeth Street. Nothing untoward was found. On the bed, a suit and shirt lay alongside a book on Greek shipping millionaires, and Lucan's wallet, car keys, money, driving license, handkerchief, and spectacles were on the bedside table. His passport was in a drawer, and his blue Mercedes-Benz parked outside, its engine cold and its battery flat. Detective Ranson then visited Veronica at St. George's Hospital, and although she was heavily sedated, she was able to describe what had happened to her. A police officer was left to guard her should her assailant return. Sandra's body was taken to the mortuary, and a search was undertaken of all local basement areas and gardens, skips, and open spaces. After removing her corpse from the canvas sack and beginning the postmortem examination, pathologist Keith Simpson told Ranson he was certain that Rivet had been killed before her body was placed in the sack and that, in his opinion, the lead pipe found at the scene could be the murder weapon. Her estranged husband, Roger, had an alibi for the night concerned and was completely eliminated from police inquiries. 
other male friends and boyfriends were questioned and discounted as suspects. Her parents confirmed that Sandra had a good working relationship with Veronica and was extremely fond of the children. Meanwhile, Lucan had yet to make an appearance, and so his description was circulated to police forces around the country. Newspaper and television stations were told only that Lucan was wanted by the police for questioning. Hours earlier, Lucan had again called his mother at about 12.30 a.m. He told her that he would be in touch later that day, but declined to speak with a police constable who had accompanied her to her flat. Instead, he said he would call the police later that morning. Ransom discovered that Lucan had traveled to East Sussex when he was called by Ian Maxwell Scott, who told him that Lucan had arrived at his home a few hours after the murder and had spoken with his wife, Susan. And while there, the Earl had written two letters to his brother-in-law, Bill Shan Kidd, and posted them to his London address. Maxwell Scott also called Shan Kidd at his country house near Leighton Buzzard and told him about the letters, prompting the latter to immediately drive to London to collect them. After reading them and noting that they were bloodstained, he took them to Detective Ranson. Here's one of the letters, dated 7th November 1974. Dear Bill, the most ghastly circumstances arose tonight, which I have briefly described to my mother. When I interrupted the fight at Lower Belgrave Street and the man left Veronica accused me of having hired him, I took her upstairs and sent Frances up to bed and tried to clean her up. She lay doggo for a bit, and when I was in the bathroom, left the house. The circumstantial evidence against me is strong, and that V will say was all my doing. I will also lie doggo for a bit, but I am concerned from the children. If you can manage it, I want them to live with you. Coots, trustees, St. Martin's Lane, Mr. Wall, will handle school fees. V has demonstrated her hatred for me in the past and would do anything to see me accused. For George and Francis to go through life knowing their father had stood in the dock for attempted murder would be too much. When they are old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. Yours ever, John. Another note says, there is a sale coming up at Christie's 27th November, which will satisfy bank overdrafts. Please agree reserves with Tom Craig. Proceeds go to Lloyd's, 6 Paul Mall, Coots, 59 Strand, Nat West, Bloomsbury Branch, who also hold an Esquire and Law Life Policy. The other creditors can get lost for the time being. Lucky. When asked why she had not immediately informed the police of Lucan's presence, Susan Maxwell Scott said she had not seen any newspapers or television news or listened to any radio broadcasts that might have warned her of the importance of his visit. Meanwhile, Lucan's children were taken by their aunt, Lady Sarah Gibbs, to her home in Northamptonshire, where they would remain for several weeks. On the day Veronica was discharged from the hospital, a high court hearing confirmed that the children could return to live with her. Repeated press intrusions later forced the family to move to a friend's home in Plymouth. The Ford Corsair that Lucan had been seen driving and whose details had the previous statement circulated across the country was found on Sunday in Norman Road, New Haven, about 16 miles from Uckfield. In its boot, or trunk, was a piece of lead pipe covered in surgical tape and a full bottle of vodka. The car was removed for a forensic examination, and later statements from two witnesses suggested that it was parked there sometime between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. on the morning of Friday, November 8th. Its owner, Michael Stoop, also received a letter from Lucan, delivered to his club, the St. James. However, Stoop threw the envelope away, and it was therefore not possible to check its postmark to see where it had been sent from. Here's what the letter said. My dear Michael, I have had a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence. 
However, I won't bore you with anything or involve you except to say that when you come across my children, which I hope you will, please tell them that you knew me and that all I cared about was them. The fact that a crooked solicitor and a rotten psychiatrist destroyed me between them will be of no importance to the children. I gave Bill Shand Kidd an account of what actually happened, but judging by my last effort in court, no one, let alone a 67-year-old judge, would believe, and I no longer care, except that my children should be protected. Yours ever, John. Detective Ranson suspected a suicide, but a thorough search of New Haven Downs was judged impossible. A partial search was made using tracker dogs, but all that was found were the skeletal remains of a judge who had disappeared years earlier. Police divers searched the harbor, and a partial search using infrared photography was undertaken the following year to no avail. A warrant for Lucan's arrest to answer charges of murdering Sandra Rivet and attempting to murder his wife was issued on Tuesday, November 12th. Descriptions of his appearance already issued to police forces across the UK were then issued to Interpol. The forensic examination of the lead pipes found at the murder scene and in the Corsair's trunk revealed traces of blood on the pipe from 46 Lower Belgrave Street. This proved to be a mixture of both Veronica's, blood group A, and Sandra's, blood group B. And hair belonging to Veronica was also found on that pipe, but none belonging to Sandra. The pipe found inside the car had neither blood nor hair on it. Home office scientists were unable to prove conclusively that both pipes were cut from the same longer piece of piping, although they thought it was very likely. The tape wrapped around both was similar, but those two could not be conclusively linked. The letters written to Bill Shand Kidd were same with blood considered to be from both women. The letter to Michael Stoop had no blood on it, and it was later proven that the paper it was written on had been torn from a writing pad found in the Corsair's boot. An examination of the blood stains found inside 46 Lower Belgrave Street demonstrated that Rivet had been attacked in the basement kitchen, while Veronica had been attacked at the top of the basement stairs. By the afternoon of Friday, November 8th, the newspaper's early editions carried photographs of the Lucans across their front pages, accompanied by headlines like, quote, Body and Sack, Countess Runs Out Screaming, and, quote, Belgravia Murder, Earl Sought. Very sensational. A meeting that day at Claremont between Aspinall, Minor Tagen, Kidd, Elwes, Charles Benson, and Stephen Raphael became the cause of much press speculation. Minor Tagen and Raphael later insisted that the gathering was just a rational discussion between concerned friends, keen to share anything they knew about what had happened, but the relationship between the police and Lucan's social circle was strained. Some officers complained that an, quote, Eaton Mafia was working against them, which doesn't surprise me because rich people band together. Susan Maxwell Scott refused to add her statement, and when Aspinall's mother, Lady Osborne, was asked if she could help locate Lucan's body, she replied, quote, The last I heard of him, he was being fed to the tigers at my son's zoo, prompting the police to search the house and the animal cages there. Police searched 14 county houses and estates, including Holcomb Hall and Warwick Castle, to no avail. Amidst concerns expressed by the Labour MP Marcus Lipton that some people were, quote, being a bit snooty with the police, Benson wrote a letter to the editor of the Times asking him to either identify those people or, quote, kindly withdraw his remarks. To their cost, Private Eye accused Goldsmith of being at the Claremont meeting when he was actually in Ireland. Elwes went to see Veronica in the hospital and was reportedly deeply shocked by both her appearance and her statement, quote, who's the mad one now? Elwes was apparently unhappy at some of the negative press coverage of the Countess and was later ostracized by his friends for his part in an article 
critical of Lucan, which appeared in the Sunday Times magazine. Sadly, Elwes committed suicide in September 1975. Rivet's case made headlines around the world, and with days of her murder, newspaper reported on Lady Lucan's statement to the police with claims that she had been pretended to collude with her husband to ensure her safety, which was very smart. In January 1975, Veronica gave an exclusive interview to the Daily Express. She also appeared in a murder reconstruction in the same newspaper, complete with posed photographs taken inside the house. The inquest into Sandra's death opened on November 13th and was led by the coroner for Inner West London, Gavin Thurston. There were two witnesses called to the courtroom, which was packed with reporters. Roger, Sandra's ex-husband, and the pathologist, Keith Simpson, had confirmed that Rivet had died from being hit on the head with a blunt instrument. The hearing began with introductions from various legal representatives, including a lawyer hired for Lucan by his mother. Thurston introduced the jury to the case and explained their duties. He had selected 33 witnesses to be called over the following days, including Veronica, who each day wore a dark coat and a white headscarf. Thurston questioned her on her relationship with Lucan, her marriage, her financial affairs, her employment of Sandra, and what had happened on the night of the attack. The Dowager Countess's Queen's Council attempted to ask Veronica about the nature of their relationship, if she hated her husband, but Thurston ruled his line of questioning inadmissible. Women Detective Constable Sally Blower, who had taken a statement from Frances, their daughter, on the 20th of November, read the young girl's words to the court. Frances had heard a scream, and a few minutes later had watched as her mother, with blood on her face, and father had entered the room. Her mother had then sent her to bed. She later heard her father calling for her mother, asking where she was, and watched as he left the bathroom and walked downstairs. She also described how Sandra Rivet did not normally work on Thursday nights. Also, the landlord of the Plumber's Arms, where Veronica escaped to, described how she'd enter his bar covered head to toe in blood before she fell into a state of shock. He claimed that she shouted, Help me, help me, I've just escaped from being murdered. And my children, my children, he's murdered my nanny. The last person to confirm seeing Lucan alive, Susan Maxwell Scott, told the court that the Earl looked disheveled and his hair a little ruffled. His trousers had been damp on the right hip. Lucan had told her he'd been walking or passing by the house when he saw Veronica being attacked by a man. He let himself in, but slipped in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs. Because, of course. He told Maxwell Scott that the attacker ran off, and that Veronica was very hysterical and accused him of hiring a hitman to kill her. This is like a Buster Keaton movie. Once the hearing ended, Thurston made a summary of the evidence presented and told the jury their options. At 11.45 a.m., their foreman announced murder by Lord Lucan. Lucan became the first member of the House of Lords to be named a murderer since 1760. Eventually, Sandra's body, which had been held for several weeks following the murder, was released to her family and cremated at a Croydon crematorium. Lucan's friends and family were critical of the inquest, which they felt offered a one-sided view of events. His mother told reporters that it, quote, did not serve any useful purpose at all. Veronica's sister said that she felt great sadness and sorrow at the verdict. Susan Maxwell Scott continued to press the Earl's claims of innocence and claimed to feel awfully sorry for the Countess. However, as Lucan remained absent, his description of a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence came only from the letters he authored and the people he spoke with soon after Rivet's murder, which obviously were very planned out. While his fingerprints were not found at the scene, his assertions make no provision for the lead pipe discovered in the trunk of the Ford Corsair. The claims by some that he had discussed murdering his wife 
or the lack of a viable suspect for the man he claimed to have seen fighting her. Again, there was no sign of forced entry, and officers attempting to demonstrate that Lucan could have seen into the basement kitchen from the street could only do so by stooping low to the pavement, which is what I was thinking earlier. I'm like, how could he have possibly seen that? Also, the basement light was not working, so it made it even more difficult to see into the room. So not very smart, Earl. According to a probate document in 1999, quote, be it known that Right Honorable Richard John Bingham, 7th Earl of Lucan of 72A Elizabeth Street, London, SW1, died on or since the 8th day of November 1974. His family was granted probate over his estate in 1999, but no death certificate was issued, and his heir George Bingham, Lord Bingham, was refused permission to take his father's title and seat in the House of Lords. But following the passage of the Presumption of Death Act in 2013, George began a new attempt to have his father declared dead, which proved successful in a high court hearing at the Rolls Building in February of 2016. And then he therefore inherited his father's title, becoming the 8th Earl of Lucan. Superintendent Roy Ranson initially claimed that Lucan had done the honorable thing and fallen on his own sword. Ranson later changed his view, however, explaining that he considered it more likely that suicide was far from Lucan's thought, and that a drowning at sea was implausible, and the Earl had moved to southern Africa. A detective who had led a new investigation into Lucan's disappearance 32 years after the murder told the Telegraph that the evidence points towards the fact that Lord Lucan left the country and lived abroad for a number of years. Lucan's disappearances truly captivated the public's imagination for decades, including my own. And there's been thousands of sightings reported around the world. One of the earliest sightings after the murder turned out to be British politician John Stonehouse, who had attempted to fake his own death. The police traveled to France in June the following year to hunt another lead, but to no avail. There are claims that the two eldest Lucan children were sent to Africa in the early 80s so that their father might secretly watch them, quote, from a distance, but George Bingham denied they'd ever visited the country. Veronica dismissed the newspaper claims of sightings as nonsense, reiterating that her husband was not the sort of Englishman to cope abroad. So who knows? It's the mystery endures. But in 2017, a Met Police spokesperson said, quote, Police attended an address at Eaton Row in Westminster following concerns for the welfare of an elderly occupant. Officers forced entry and found an 80-year-old woman unresponsive. It was later determined that Veronica had committed suicide, and she believed that her husband had killed himself like the nobleman he was. And following an inquest into her death, daughter Camilla Bingham told the Daily Mail, quote, Mummy left her estate to the homeless charity Shelter. Formerly named Veronica Dowager Countess of Lucan, Lady Lucan had severed her ties with her family in, 19, in the 1980s and continued to decline contact with them until her death. Not quite sure why, but... The amount of inheritance is unknown, but while her Belgravia home was thought to be worth millions, a friend of the aristocrat said during the inquest that she had indicated she was struggling financially. And that is the story of Lord Lucan and his mysterious disappearance and the murder of Sandra Rivet. Right, friends, and now for something beautiful. They're called Neogen Dermology Biopeel Gauze Peeling Wine. And they're 30 pads, and they're basically soaked in this liquid that smells absolutely heavenly. And it's like a wine serum that contains potent antioxidants like resveratrol, 
And what that does, again, it's an antioxidant and leaves your skin looking smoother, brighter, tighter, and healthier. Um, And their little tagline is, your daily glass of wine in a jar without the calories. And, you know, it's very easy exfoliation. I personally like to, I prefer to avoid um, super intense manual exfoliation, like, um, you know, the microbeads that you might find in a St. Ives type thing. I think that that's a little bit harmful to your skin. But these are hypoallergenic cotton gauze pads that, again, are soaked in this serum. And it's slightly textured so that, you know, you do get a little bit of the manual exfoliation, but it's just with the textured cotton pad. And then obviously from the serum as well, it just exfoliates gently the dead skin cells, gets rid of excess sebum and impurities, and just wipes it away. So it's kind of a two-in-one exfoliator, but very gentle. That being said, you only want to use it maybe once or twice a week. And I would say probably this time of year when it gets colder, just the one. Um, But again, it is the most divine smelling product ever. And it comes in a beautiful package. You can look at their website. They also retail at Soko Glam, which is South Korea Glam. Um, They sell other Korean skincare products. They also sell at Ulta, HSN, The Beauty Spy, Selfridges, Douglas, Meyer, Coco. Not really as familiar with the last few, but but yes, highly recommend this product for a nice um, once a week exfoliation. And as I said, they're 30 pads, so this is going to last you a while. Right, friends, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 13. I really, really appreciate you guys listening and sharing your feedback. And I would still love to hear from you. Please write and review. I know that, um, you know, getting started, there's there are hiccups along the way. So I'm trying to make this as smooth as possible and, you know, devote as much time as I can to this because I really love exploring and researching and presenting these types of cases. So Um, hopefully you enjoyed this one it's a crazy story and it's you know interesting it's like how does somebody disappear like that even in the 70s you know that's hard to do and somebody that is so such a standout character too but um who knows i'd love to hear what you think your theories on on what happened i mean i think it's without a doubt he is guilty of the murder um as i said i don't think he's a very good uh criminal by any means in terms of covering his tracks but would love to know what you think Um, Feel free to shoot me an email at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast on um, Facebook as well as Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast. And you can listen on crimeandbeauty.podbean.com, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Google, all the things. And thanks for listening. Until next time, stay beautiful. (music) 